the greatest evangelist of all times was the Apostle Paul. Paul went about preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ for approximately 30 years. During that time, he was confronted with many problems. It is my opinion that probably the greatest problem that Paul was confronted with was the Judaizing problem, Judaizing movement. And this evening, I want to uh, talk to you uh, about this problem. Now, the years of the first century, Ecclesia, from A.D. 33 until approximately 100 A.D., were filled with turmoil, excitement, patriotism, and readjustment. Readjustment particularly for the Jews. Some were taken from their homes as slaves by the Iron Legions of Rome. Thousands were crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. But a comparatively few Jews were influenced by the lifestyle and teaching of a gentle man from Galilee named Jesus of Nazareth. And for them, this was a time of great spiritual convictions and trials. Of those who accepted Christianity, there probably was no one who underwent more for his convictions than the Apostle Paul. In his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, he enumerates some of these trials and persecutions that he went through. We read, Are they Hebrews? Paul asks, So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more often, more frequent, and in deaths often. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. You will remember that under the law of Moses, the authorities was not able to beat a man more than 39 times. Paul says he underwent that five different times. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and the day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. 
this was a record that no one else, I think, had gone through. It is my opinion, however, that the most serious problem that Paul had to contend with was this Judaizing problem. And so for a few moments, let us direct our attention to this problem. A consideration of prior events and the attitudes of those involved in this problem will enable us to more readily grasp the problem. Now for approximately 2,000 years from Abraham until Christ, the Jews had been highly favored by God. Because of his potentials, God made, a great, made great and precious promises to Abraham, the ultimate fulfillment of which would be carried out by a descendant of Abraham, which Paul said was Jesus of Nazareth. Excuse me a minute, I'm going to see if I can get that to fly. <laughs> Funny how a little thing can bug you, isn't it? Please, please don't anywhere sneeze. That's my weakness. If you sneeze, I'm gone. And don't hold up uh, any baby bottles like somebody in the audience is liable to do tonight. I won't mention who they are. <laughs> the prophet Amos very aptly describes this favored position that the Jews were in when in speaking for God he, he said this Amos said you only, you Israel have I known of all the families of the earth which statement shows how very favored the nation of Israel really was. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. However Rather than developing an attitude of humbleness and appreciativeness, the nation tended to appropriate to themselves a spirit of superiority, of exclusiveness, an attitude of, I am better than you, especially toward the Gentiles. We see this attitude exemplified by the priest and the Levite in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan who, when on a journey, came upon a man who had been robbed and severely beaten and left on the roadside almost dead. They only looked on him and moving over to the other side of the road passed by him unaided. Their attitude was directly opposite that of a good Samaritan, a Gentile who showed great compassion for one so urgently in need of help, gave him first aid, and then took him to a, an inn. Having seen the attitude which the Jews had adopted over centuries with regard to the Gentiles, let us leave them here and move on to the Apostle Paul as we continue to research the problem that he became most involved in, namely this Judaizing movement. Paul was born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, which is presently in Turkey in Asia Minor. He was born of Jewish parents. He was, however, a Roman citizen inasmuch as the citizens of Tarsus 
inherited that privileged status of Roman citizenship. And this was because of some heroic deed which the citizens of Tarsus had done for the Roman government. And there was still another unusual circumstance pertaining to Paul. Because he was of the diaspora, that is, he was a Jew who was not a native of Palestine or Israel, but one living outside of the confines of the state. And he tended to be, because he was a Jew of the diaspora, he intended to be Hellenistically inclined. Now just what do we mean by the word Hellenist? The term literally means one who speaks Greek. The Jews at this time were divided into two basic groups. The native-born Palestinians and those who were foreign-born. Greek culture, science, art, governmental concepts, of which democracy was one, religion and language had been the dominating influence in the Mediterranean world for roughly 500 years. The Greek language was universal in this area, somewhat like the English language is universal pretty much all over the world today, probably spoken more than any other language. However, Judea resisted Hellenism to the last particularly the Greek belief in a multiplicity of gods. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. This is one of the tenets of Judaism, of, of, uh, of the religion of the Jews, and they have held that all along and still do today. The Greek idea of a multiplicity of gods did not go over with the Jews. When one takes into consideration the background that Paul had, you can see that he was the right man in the right place at the right time to take Christianity to the Gentile world. He could speak a language which they knew. He could understand their philosophic viewpoints. He could quote their poets and seers which he did at Athens, as you will remember. He had a trade, that of a tent maker, which he fell back on when necessary for his sustenance. And more important than all of these assets, he bore the conviction in his heart that he was a chosen vessel to bring the gospel the Gentiles. One must have a burning desire if they're going to be a success in most any enterprise. And I think if anything that Paul had, there was that burning desire to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He knew that he was to be a special envoy to them. He was always ready to spend and to be spent for the well-being of his brothers and sisters and this even when his service was unappreciated in some instances 
by them and rejected. If one were to search God's word as it was recorded by his servants in the Old Testament, seeking to find some clues to the calling of the Gentiles into covenant relationship with a view to their salvation from eternal death to eternal life, he might well start with one of the greatest, the most all-inclusive promises that God has ever made to a man. I refer to that which God made to Abraham. It is found in Genesis 22:15 to 18, and we read, The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now were we restricted to this passage alone, we could well believe that the blessing of all nations would be brought about through the instrumentality of the Jewish nation. And the Jews believe that today. Uh, they believe that uh, they are, uh, those who are orthodox in their belief, they believe that it, it is through them that the blessing of all nations is going to come. However, the Apostle Paul clarified this in his words to the brethren in Galatia. And there he wrote, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not to seeds as of many, but of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So the promise of a seed that would bless all nations was Jesus and not the nation of Israel. The prophet Isaiah touches upon the day when God's blessing would be extended to the Gentiles. In verse 8 we read, For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, and the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God that gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet I will gather others beside those who are gathered unto him. So we see the calling of the Gentiles. We see it in different places of the Old Testament. Here are two statements which, when properly evaluated, infer a blessing to be extended to the Gentiles. Verse 7 says, 
God's house will in the day coming be called a house of prayer for all people. The prophet Ezekiel gives very explicit details as to the measurements and plans of this temple which will be built in Jerusalem for the use in the ages yet to come. Jesus, as recorded by John in chapter 10, spoke of himself as a shepherd in quite a similar manner as did David in the 23rd Psalm. He speaks exclusively of his efforts to tend his sheep as would a good shepherd. And in verse 16 he makes a very significant statement. Jesus now. Other sheep, said he, I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall be, there shall be one fold and one shepherd. These other sheep which Jesus refers to would seem to be the same ones that Isaiah prophesied in chapter 56, verse 8, where he said, The Lord God, which gathers the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet I will gather others to him beside those that are gathered to him. Moving on now to the New Testament, we find events and circumstances which point to the calling of the Gentiles. For example, Jesus at the city of Sychar in Samaria. This is in John, the fourth chapter, verse 39-42. You remember that Jesus was going from Galilee to Judea. He had to pass through Samaria, and he stopped en route uh, at the city of Sychar, and there the woman came out. He convinced her that he was the Messiah, and she went back to the city uh, with the message. Uh, the populace came out, and they, uh, many of them were converted, in my opinion. I think, really, that's the first Gentiles that came into covenant relationship. And it was through the instrumentality of Jesus himself. Well, the calling of the Gentiles becomes explicit beyond a doubt when Peter, having been instru instructed by God, opens the door to the Gentiles in the home of Cornelius, who was a Gentile officer in the Roman uh, army of occupation stationed in the seaport city of Joppa. Probably the greatest proof of the calling of the Gentiles is to be seen in Jesus' last commission to his brethren as recorded in Mark the 16th chapter. And I think this is the greatest commission that has ever been given to Christians. You and I, brothers and sisters, Jesus then said very last thing he said as he left this earth to his disciples go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved he that believeth not shall be condemned we find however that there were some Jew Jews getting down now to this Judaizing movement there were some Jews who before they had become Christians had been of the Pharisaic party. They were Pharisees. And they looked with a considerable degree of askance upon Paul's conversion of the Gentiles as he traveled about on his missionary journeys. They even went so far as to demand that any Gentile coming into the ecclesias 
must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's the, that's the bone of contention. These Jews who had accepted Christianity, but who were of the Pharisaic persuasion, who uh, uh, had been imbued with the concept that uh, the Jews were a highly favored people, the Gentiles, they even referred to them as dogs, they felt uh, very reluctant to let the Gentiles come into the covenant. So they said, all right, we'll, we'll go along with this, Paul, but uh, we, we agree they must be baptized, of course. But then on top of that, they must be circumcised and they must keep the law of Moses. Do you not now see the battle lines that were being drawn up between Paul and these Judaizing brethren? Paul, aided by his Hellenistic background and by explicit directions from Jesus, was convinced that the Jews had forfeited their favored position in God's sight when they rejected the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth and confident that God's offer of salvation was now thrown wide open to the previously excluded Gentiles, pursued his conviction with the utmost zeal as he journeyed throughout Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, and finally as a prisoner in Rome, preaching the good news concerning the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ as the coming king. Listen now as Paul scathingly denounces the Judaizers. We turn to Galatians, the third chapter, and we read. I'm going to spot read. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been previously set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, that's the law of Moses, or by the hearing of faith? Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Wherefore then serveth the law? Why are you continuing to serve the law? Why do you make this issue as you are? The law was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Jesus, of course. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. The law came through Moses. He was the mediator of that law. But before faith came, we were kept under this law shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs, 
according to the promise. The victory which Paul ultimately attained was not easily won. Since the problem could not be resolved by the contending parties, incidentally, Paul at this time was in, uh, was in Antioch of Syria, which was uh, in what's Asia Minor now. And uh, there were certain uh, 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 brethren, uh, the Judaizers, who came up from Judea, from basically from Jerusalem, up to Antioch, and were preaching this idea that the uh, Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And since this problem could not be uh, resolved by Paul against the Judaizers, uh, it was decided that the issue should be taken to the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. This was the high court, if you'd like to call it that way. And they were recognized as the highest authorities in the, in the church. And we read of this in the 15th chapter of Acts. So uh, we'll turn now to that. Again, I'm going to uh, spot read it, uh, the verses which are pertinent to the subject. And uh, although this is a little bit long, it's very, uh, very pertinent to the problem. And we read that certain men which came down from Judea to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas was, uh, they said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Now, let's project our thoughts to this great conference, probably what might be considered to be the first economical conference of the Christians. Uh, they had gone to Jerusalem, they were assembled, some sort of a, a room, and uh, the, the heads of the church were there. Now this thing was going to be resolved if possible. And uh, so we read uh, again in four, verse 4. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the elders and the apostles, and they declared all things that God had done by them. Paul, Barnabas declaring what they had done. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. These were the Judaizing brethren now. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, back and forth, I suppose, pro and con, giving their different viewpoints in this matter, when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that by the Gentiles, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about when he converted Cornelius and his household, which were Gentiles. And God, which knoweth the heart, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did us. 
and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt you, God, to put a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the favor, if you like, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. Came. Now it was their turn to get up and present their viewpoints. Who declared what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they held their peace, after Paul and Barnabas were through and sat down, I suppose, then James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken to me. Simon, that's Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written after this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon, my upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders of the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas named namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren, and they wrote letters by them after this manner. They were the bearers of these letters, if you like. And they said the apostles, this is what was written in the letters, the apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Forasmuch as we have heard that certain went, which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandments. The apostles, the elders in Jerusalem said, We did not give these men that command. They have been falsifying the matter. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our brothers, beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And here's what they said that uh, you must conform to, if you like, that you abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if you keep yourselves, you shall do well of propagating their concept, particularly in Galatia. That's why Paul starts his, uh, in the third chapter, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? And those who were be bewitching them were these Judaizers. Only rare and exceptional persons 
rose above the pride of past generations and were willing to set aside their law, that is the law of Moses, to accept the offering of God's plan of salvation to the Gentiles. May I read that once more? Only rare and exceptional persons, there were many, uh, these Judaizers in particular, were not of this class. They were steeped in the concept of the favored nation, and they were not willing, or they did not rise above the pride of past generations. And they were not willing to set aside their law, that is the law of Moses, to accept the offering of God's plan of salvation to the Gentiles. Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, who had accepted Christianity, and incidentally, this, uh, if Paul was the author, and most everyone thinks he was, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, basically this epistle to the Hebrews was, was a letter to the Jews who had accepted Christianity, the Hebrews who had accepted Christianity. And in, in this letter, he, he tries his best to convince them of the error of the, of the thinking of the Judaizers. He does that in many different ways, basically by showing the superiority of Christ over Moses, of the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus over the law of Moses, and uh, the superiority of Jesus over angels. And we... we uh, we read now uh, from uh, Hebrews uh, some of these facts. The whole book is uh, basically built around that idea. But in uh, chapter 1, at verse 5, we read this. Paul says now to these Hebrews, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, that said God at any time, Unto which of the angels did God say at any time, You are my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's drawing a comparison. because said, God never said that to any angel. Never said, Thou art my son or sons, this day have I begotten you. But he said that to Jesus. And again, God never said to the angels, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. So you see the superiority of Jesus over the angels. In chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3, we read, Wherefore, holy brethren, Paul says, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted more worthy, was counted, was counted worthy rather, of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. Jesus, superiority over Moses. Superiority of Jesus Christ's priesthood, we see in chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. We read, This man, he's speaking now of Jesus, this man continueth ever, and hath an unchanging priesthood. 
This was not true of the priest under the law of Moses. They, it was a changing priesthood because what, man could only minister so long, then he had to retire, and of course he died. Not so with Jesus. Wherefore, he, Jesus, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto him, unto God, by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest, Jesus, became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. The law of Moses made priests who had infirmities. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Finally, at the end of this, his letter to the Hebrews, Paul gives personal instructions to these Hebrew Christian brethren. And we find this in the 13th chapter. And let us look at that. And again, I'm going to spot read, so it will be difficult for you to keep, keep up, probably. Paul writes now in conclusion uh, uh, to these uh, Jewish brethren who had accepted Christianity. He says, let brotherly love continue. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Let your conversation, that is your, your manner of living, be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We're in the same boat as the expression is, aren't we, brothers and sisters? We have no continuing city, but we look one for to come. And we look for it in the very near future, too, as has been brought out so very forcibly here in the Bible school this week. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Uh, Brother Fitzgerald brought that up. To do good. To have faith is fine, but that's only the first step. We must follow up our faith by our works. And you'll remember, Jesus spoke a parable one time about a shepherd who divided the sheep from the goats. And he said to the sheep, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was sick and you ministered unto me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was strange and you took me in, and so forth. And then to those, the goats on the left, who were not uh, to come into the kingdom, he said, you didn't do these things. The point I'm driving at is, here was works. And it is works that is going to determine whether we get into that kingdom or not. We can have all kinds of faith. But if we don't perform works, if we don't administer to a, if we don't take every opportunity to, to be about our Father's business, beware. I forgot where I'm at here now. Uh, this is the 13th chapter. Spot reading again. Let brotherly love continue. 
Remember them that are in bonds. Let your manner of living be without covetousness. Be content with such things which you have. Be content with what you have, but do not, do not be content with yourself. Don't be content with yourself. Never be satisfied. Always striving to be better, to do better, to perfect your character. For he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What comfort there is in that. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And now the God of peace that brought again the dead, from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. I would like to read now a few excerpts from Dr. Thomas. Dr. Thomas wrote about this subject, and uh, these, I believe, all of these are from Eureka. And again, it's, it's spot reading. He, re he, he writes quite a bit on it. Of course, we don't have time, but I've picked out what I think is rather the pertinent thing. And so he writes, um, now in the apostolic state, which had not entirely passed uh, until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 72, the first love of the angel presbyteries began very early to be impaired at different points. Paul wrote the, um, the uh, does he say, the iniquity of, has already set in, I can't think of it, but you all are familiar with this, He's saying that apostasy had already set in even in Paul's day. Well, that's what Dr. Thomas is bringing out here, that this first love uh, had very early began to be impaired. The angels of this unholy enterprise emanated from Judea and began the work of subverting souls at Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. That's where Paul and Barnabas were at the time. These were, the, were of the sect of the Pharisees who enjoyed the fellowship of the apostles and consorted with them in their meetings, and I think they were certainly brethren. They had therefore ample means and opportunities of knowing the truth, aware that it would be useless for them to broach dogmas in the presence of the uh, apostles and elders. They went out from them and troubled the Gentiles with words. What they dared not teach in Jerusalem, they taught in Antioch and other places. And as the serpent through subtlety sought to corrupt their minds from the simplicity that is in Christ. But although this attempt was opposed and apostolically denounced, the enterprise was not abandoned by the Christianized Pharisees. They determined to popularize Christianity so as to make it palatable to the Jews in the hope that it would cause them to cease persecuting those who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They therefore taught that men should believe the gospel, be immersed, then be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if they would be saved. This was Judaizing and inventing of a lie. The apostles taught no such doctrine as this, and in the decree they published, they declared 
that all other than believing the gospel and being baptized was unnecessary and vain. But others arose after these and added new elements to the lie. Truth is fixed, but lies never diminish in circulating, but always increase. Pious Jews began the work of corrupting the faith, and pious Gentiles who had been subverted added some of their philosophy and gnosis, or science falsely, falsely so-called. This he uh, uh, describes what gnosis means. That's spelled G-N-O-S-I-S, not very familiar to most of us. Uh, this was science, falsely so-called, to the original stock, and in their combination produced what Paul styles as um, the mystery of iniquity. This, he says, was already working, and in its working, through Judaizing and philosophizing teachers, gave him all the trouble and mortification he laments of in several of his epistles. The mystery of iniquity then had its beginning in the apostolic state. The seeds of it were then sown broadcast by the enemy. But they did not ripen as soon as they were sown. They only began to grow. The fruit was to be the lawless one. Dr. Thomas projects the idea that this uh, Judaizing uh, era uh, grew and grew and eventually developed into the Roman Catholic system. Having put their obedience to the test and found them ready to do right in all things, he brought before them another case of wickedness, namely, that they had been visited by men professing to be Christ's who preached another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel, than which Paul had preached, who commended themselves, charging Paul with being crafty and catching them with guile. They spoke of his speech and person with disrespect. They boasted in the circumcision of their flesh, in being Hebrews, Israelites, the seed of Abraham, ministers and apostles of Christ. Now these he regarded with indignation and contempt, and likens their operation upon the congregations in Corinth and elsewhere to that of the serpent that beguiled Eve. He styles them false apostles, deceiving workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So much for what Dr. Thomas writes on the subject. And in conclusion, uh, as to the Judaizing problem, this was resolved. The issue which had been so vigorously contended were finally put into their proper perspective in this conference. Circumcision of the flesh was not to be a ritual of Christianity, but circumcision of the heart definitely a requisite for the Christian. The keeping of the law of Moses, especially the ritual of animal sacrificing, had fulfilled its objective in pointing to the all-sufficient sacrifice 
of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Nor were the traditions which the Jews had added to the law to be a part of Christianity. Do you not recall how Jesus severely condemned the Pharisees? By your traditions you have made the word of God of none effect, he told them. However, the high moral standards of the law of Moses, because there were very high standards in the law of Moses, as you know, of which the Ten Commandments were the nucleus, they became the essential part of the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The Ten Commandments carried over into Christianity. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. All of these commandments are an essential part of Christianity. So there was much of the religion of the Jews that came over and became a part of Christianity, as you know. And so we see how the religion of the Jews merged into and became the basis for Christianity.